people who tell very coherent stories about their lives, stories that are easy to follow for the listener and that kind of have a point, uh, that actually turns out to be related to psychological well-being and growth. How do you tell the story of your life? Turns out a big part of your personality are the snapshots of experiences that you assemble and reassemble of your past and future. Of course, that means that you can curate and shape those things, refine them based on what works for you and how others respond. So when you stop and think about it, we have a lot more control over the frames that we choose than we think. A lot more control of how we design our narrative and how it works with our character. The more aware we are of the story that we want to tell with our lives, the clearer our choices can be for the future. That means that the narrative habits that we have, the micro-stories that we tell, get hardened over the years, and they don't really need to be that way. This week's guest, Dan McAdams, chairs the psychology department at Northwestern University and got his own doctorate from Harvard. Dan has written over 200 scientific articles about personality and lifespan development. You can think of it as someone who has devoted their career to understanding how we develop our personal myths. He's also written the books The Redemptive Self and The Stories We Live By, and his work has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today, among others. In fact, he recently wrote the Atlantic cover story Analyzing Donald Trump's Personality, which he talks about later in this episode. In our fascinating chat, Dan does a great job breaking down how the layers of our personality form our identity and how they work together to create our life story. This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. Since you're someone who studies personalities, when you go to like parties and they find out that you study personalities, do they expect you to whip out some sort of personality party trick or do they just kind of clam up for fear that you're going to analyze them? Uh, you know, you get a little bit of both. I mean, everybody's got their own uh, folk notion of what personality is about. I don't usually broadcast it. They know I'm a psychologist. They know I'm interested in people's lives and um, how people create stories for their lives. That's my big emphasis in my research and personality. But uh, I, they don't think of me as a, uh, a personality psychologist who's analyzing them, although you do get some folks who – uh, once they find out that you're a psychologist, they'll start telling you about their Myers-Briggs profile. And so <laughs> it's just sort of the bane of my existence, the Myers-Briggs being the most used personality uh, assessment device in the world, I believe. And it has absolutely no scientific validity. But nonetheless, uh, it's, it's used a lot. So people have strong views on that one. Uh, but you don't, right? <laughs> I don't. I don't. In fact, it's funny. When I started thinking about what personality even was, I started getting pretty tripped up. So 
what is personality? Like, how do you even think about what personality is? Yeah, great question. So there's three parts to it, really. There's like a base part of personality, the fun, the foundational traits uh, that basically uh, specify uh, how you, uh, what makes you different from other people with respect to how you perform your roles, your social and emotional patterns. And so these are things like extroversion, conscientiousness, really basic differences between people. So that's what most people think about when they think about personality, your fundamental traits. And uh, psychologists have sort of identified five basic ones, but those are down at the fundamental level. But then layered over that is some of the more interesting stuff at the second level, things like your life goals, your life values, your agenda, what you wake up in the morning wanting to accomplish, that's part of your personality too. And then layered over that, the third level uh, is your story, uh, a narrative that you've created about who you are, who you've been, where your life is going. And so it's sort of like your traits are at the bottom, your goals and values layer over that. And uh, on the top is this story that you've created. And all three of these things are really what comprise your personality, which is a kind of psychological profile of how of what makes you a unique person at this time uh, and in this culture. Now, I've always told myself that I am a certain personality type. That's the way I was born. That's the way that I kind of inherited this thing. But since you're saying that there's a storytelling factor on top of it, this narrative on top of that, that also comprises your personality, does that idea that we're born or inherit some sort of personality, is that actually false or just somewhat true? It's somewhat true, uh, certainly with respect to the first level of foundational traits. I, w I wouldn't say you're born with them, uh, but there, there's a lot, a lot that most people can do to uh, make big changes in the kind of traits that are developing. I mean, your, your, your basic traits like uh, conscientiousness or how empathic and agreeable you are. Let's take that trait. These seem to be a product of your genes and your environments. Uh, nature and nurture kind of conspire, really. They work together to create a certain kind of style of relating to the world. Uh, but this is happening long before you're aware of yourself as a human being, let alone aware of yourself as a, having a personality. So by the time you kind of wake up, which is about two or three years of age, and you start looking around and going, whoa, you know, I'm, I'm a I'm a self, I'm a person, I'm, I'm out here in the world. By then, your personality traits have been developing kind of offline all along, and you didn't have any anything to do with them. And and indeed, I, there's a lot to basic traits that are that seem that feel that they're beyond your control. I mean, very, very few people feel that they chose to be an extrovert, for example, or that they developed a plan to be an especially anxious person, and that's why they are an anxious person. I mean, these seem to be features of psychological individuality that feel as if they've been given to us, or in some cases forced upon us, either by genes or environments or some conspiracy between the two. But then there's other features of personality that feel more owned and created. I mean, your goals, for example, uh, your, your, your values, what you choose to pursue in daily life, uh, your long-term plans. Most people feel as if they have some agency when it comes to these sorts of things, which is indeed true. And then also the story that you create for your life. Now, that's a function of many things, but people have a certain kind of authorial uh, uh, I think, um, privilege when it comes to creating a story for their lives. So it's a, uh, a lot of it's given and a lot of it is sort of created. And, um, 
Uh, it's both. How do you think about a story that you're telling yourself about your life? My my brain jumps around a whole lot. Is it where you're sitting there literally telling yourself a narrative, almost like a book where there's like, first I was born and these things happened and that made me this kind of way? and Or is it less linear than that? It can go any way. I mean, uh, some people are um, sort of very self-conscious about this. I mean, they, they, they really sort of think about their life with a clear beginning, middle, and imagined ending. Uh, for most people, though, it's sort of implicit. Uh, and it kind of comes to the fore during important moments in life. So let's say you're, you're deciding to, uh, you know, you're thinking about changing your, your work. You, you might take on a new job, or maybe you're uh, deciding to get married, or you're moving to another part of the country or the world and starting up a new life. You know, big transition moments like that in the adult years often are occasioned by a kind of uh, implicit reflection on, you know, well, where's my life going? Who have I been? Uh, what's the next chapter of my life? Uh, people talk that way about themselves oftentimes. Uh, so uh, you, you get a lot of variation in that. In, in the research that I do, we actually force it on people a little bit. We ask them to sit down and think about their life uh, as if it were a book. Think about your life as if it were a novel and divide it up into chapters. And let's talk about each chapter. And then we ask for high points, low points, turning points moments in the life story. And when I first started doing this research 30 years ago, in fact, uh, I thought, well, you know, you know, people might not want to do this or they might think it's really weird. You know, well, well my life's not like a story. It's nothing like that. And, uh, you know, now 30 years later, there was one person one time in one of our interviews who said, you know, I can't do this. That's not how I think about my life. But everybody else says, yeah, that's cool. Sure, sure. I mean, it started this way and then this happened. So uh, although we don't sit down and work it out like that all the time, it, it, it comes pretty easy for people. And I, and I do believe that most of us, by the time we're in our late teenage years or early adult years, we're walking around with stories in our head about how we came to be who we are. And, and these are important uh, in, um, these are important features of what make us uh, different and from and similar to other people. So is the cover of the book itself your identity? The book is your identity. Yeah, the book is. But do we label the stories in some sort of sum total where we say, you know, my identity is, and then you kind of just simplify it almost like I am a creative person who believes in love or I don't know what, what it would be. Yeah. So you could have an identity. You know, I am a career. I mean, identity means many things. First of all, it's just like identifying who you are. So you're like, I'm a man, I'm a creative person. I, I live in Chicago, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, the story is sort of like the stuff that tries to link up who you were, who you are now, and who you're going to be in the future. So the word identity in psychology, it means many things. Stripped down to its simplest, it's just a, a kind of like your name and your place and your role. But beyond that, people uh, think about it in terms of, well, what gives my life unity and purpose? What's the what's the authentic thing going on here? And when you start thinking about yourself that way, narrative becomes a really powerful tool for making sense. And it's a natural tool. I mean, storytelling comes easily to human beings. We've been doing it for literally, you know, I mean, tens of thousands of years, perhaps 100,000 years. I mean, since the advent of language, probably even before people were sort of enacting narratives. And there is something about a human life. You know, it moves forward in time. There's a beginning. We were born. We know we're going to die. 
it seems to lend itself to a kind of narrative frame. So, so very few people like find this idea that their life is a story weird. I mean, most people think, oh yeah, that makes some sense. Uh, they also realize at the same time that, uh, well, I may have lots of different stories about my life. They are sort of thematically related in one way or another. And so I guess when you think about that book with the cover, maybe it's kind of like an anthology for some people, an anthology of short stories that are linked thematically. So if this layer of our personality is this fictionalized story, does that mean that we are choosing how we want to tell it even retrospectively, like the past is kind of up for grabs, like a big box of photographs, and we're just stringing the things together. But as we move through life, we might reconfigure those things if we want to have some sort of different perspective of ourselves. I think that's exactly right. That's a good metaphor. You can think about it as photos spread out. So there are real photos. Certain things really happened. I was born February 7th, 1954, say. I mean, this is, this is well known. I mean, I grew up in Gary, Indiana, whatever. I mean, there are facts. There are photos. There are real things that happened as you recall them. But the, but the organization of it, the kind of narrative gloss you put over it, that can change over time. And so I think creating a story for one's life is not unlike – what a historian does or what historians do when they try to make sense of the past. So sure, Napoleon really lived and he was defeated at Waterloo and there are certain kinds of things. But like, what did Napoleon mean in the context of 19th century European history? We may have a different view of that, that today as historians than maybe we had 100 years ago. So there is a sense in which the past is up for grabs to a certain extent. Uh, at the same time, there are constraints on that. We can't say, you know, Napoleon, he never lived. That, that just never happened. I mean, there, there are things in our lives that, 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 that uh, we are bound to, and we are bound to them, you know, because they happen, but also we are bound to them because as we talk to other people and as we live as social animals in groups, uh, you know, people, we know each other. We know facts about each other. So we can't just one day decide, you know what? I've got a new story for my life. I've decided that I was born poor. And my friends go, what are you talking about, man? You were rich when you were, we knew you when you were five years old. They go, no, no, I got a new story. So you just can't make stuff up out of the blue. But you can potentially make up your the, the outside of the objective pieces like I was born here, how you're making sense of it, you can change, right? For sure, for sure. And, and that's one of the ways identity changes. It's not just that things happen and, and you know, like uh, I'm 10 years older today than I was 10 years ago and all the things that have happened in the past 10 years get added on. It may also be the case that, you know, 10 years uh, today, I, I think of my childhood differently maybe than I did 10 years ago. Uh, it's the same childhood, some of the same kinds of things and facts, but I prioritize it differently. I interpret it differently. Uh, and that's the way in which to use your term, uh, the past is up for grabs. How much of that is us reacting in the same way? Like I have, for example, an almost two-year-old right now among a couple of <laughs> one off to college and one in high school. And the super young one, when he's reacting to stories, it's a very like there's a red truck. It goes over a hill. Very like plot driven uh, reaction to stories. Whereas my teenagers have a very different reaction to story and other things start to become more important to them. So I guess my question is, is how much of your past and your own personality, when you look into yourself, even into your future, 
and you're starting to fictionalize these things changes less so because of you saying, wait a minute, I have, you know, I want to change this thing. I want to tell myself a story about the future that's different because I want to change my life and my personality and my experience. And how much of it is you maturing and getting a different kind of context to where you're understanding your own story differently? I think it's more the latter. Um, so kids, kids have a pretty good sense of what's in a simple story by the time they're even four years old or five. I mean, they know that it starts, in a, you know, you've got a character who wants something at the beginning of the story, Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, the story starts when she heads off to grandma's house. She wants to get to grandma's house to deliver the, um, the cakes. And then something happens to thwart her, you know, the big bad wolf. And eventually there's some sort of climax and a, and a, and a conclusion. Uh, and, and that structure is pretty universal. You see that pretty much across cultures and you see it in young children. So they, so they kind of know what stories are pretty early on, age four or five. And they're able to tell little scenes from their own lives in that form, often with help from adults, you know, so they'll talk about yesterday, you know, I went to McDonald's, my mommy took me to McDonald's and I've had French fries and I'll tell a little story about that. Uh, so you know, this is pretty early, but, but, you know, five-year-olds aren't thinking about what their lives mean and they don't have any kind of long-term perspective. They may say, oh, I want to be a artist when I grow up. I want to be a baseball player, but they don't really have a realistic plan and an understanding. It's not really until adolescence that you start to engage in the kind of narrative processing that, that creates this layer of narrative identity. You don't really have a story for your life until adolescence at the earliest. And at that time, uh, young people begin to, they're able to do certain things cognitively that they couldn't do before. They start to see themes in their lives. They'll say, oh, wow, you know, I've had these five different episodes. They're all kind of similar. They all suggest that, you know, maybe I don't trust people who remind me of my father. You know, I mean, no five-year-old comes to that explicit conclusion based <laughs> on a series of themes, but by 15 or 20, that kind of thing can be done. Or they can make causal kinds of sequences. And so, you know, the reason I want to become a doctor is, well, it goes back to when I was in seventh grade and I, I met this kid on our street whose dad was a doctor and then I took this class and then this happened and then I had this setback and then that happened. So we can make these kind of causal chains again in adolescence uh, uh, and, and beyond. And also it's in adolescence in our society and indeed in most societies where people are asking you stuff like, well, like, what are you going to be when you grow up? Who are you? Where's your life going? And so we're sort of motivated by cognitive processes and the social milieu to begin to create a bigger picture story about who we are. So it's, it's, these things come with development. And, and then over time, uh, you know, events happen and uh, things, uh, people come in and out of your life and uh, you can be motivated to make changes in the past based on uh, changes in your life. And so, uh, again, things are continue to be revised pretty much up until the end. Now, what if we don't really love our personality so much or certain parts of it? To what extent do we have control in changing it or somehow reframing these stories to have a real effect on ourselves? Well, the stories are probably the easiest thing to change in that uh, we've... It's, it's a, a lot of it is a matter of reinterpretation or reframing. And so, you know, I, I mean, you could say that psychotherapy is an example in the modern world of 
uh, of people trying to change their stories or a therapist trying to get people to change their stories. And so I, I go in, I, I'm, I'm seeing a therapist and my problem has to do with depression about my marriage, let's say. And so I'm encouraged to think differently about my marriage, to create a different kind of story about it that might be more uh, facilitating of positive development and growth. Uh, a lot of what goes on in talking therapy addresses narrative in one way or another, the interpretations you make about events and so forth. Now, having said that, uh, that changes the story, but sometimes changing the story can also have an impact on other parts of personality too. It can have an impact on your goals and values. And in some cases, although it's not that common, you can even change your basic traits a little bit. Uh, when it comes to that sort of thing. So I don't want to suggest that, you know, even at the level of your basic traits like conscientiousness and neuroticism and extroversion, that that's all given. I think we feel that most of that is given, but even there sometimes some change occurs, although it's it's more common at the level of stories. Is there a difference between people who keep the narrative we're talking about inside themselves they just it's something that they don't share in therapy and they don't really even share with other people with loved ones or anyone else they completely keep it private and those who maybe actively share it outside themselves most people actively share it there's variation in that for sure but i mean the stories there's actually research on this and it, it turns out you know when big things happen in people's lives and they tell stories about it they, they, they talk to people I mean maybe not broadcasting it left and right maybe not blogging about it or keeping a diary that's published or anything like that but close friends uh, intimates and so forth so there's a lot of narrative sharing that happens a lot of times it's just for fun you know like whoa here, here's what happened to me yesterday and somebody tells it in a funny way I mean people kind of know how to tell narratives in ways that get a certain kind of emotional reaction in certain kinds of situations. So there's a lot of sharing that goes on. At the same time, there are some people who who are, you know, do a little less of that and, and keep it inside. Uh, I don't know if there's a lot of psychological significance to that, uh, to tell you the truth, um, except I, I guess in that if your story is insulated inside you and doesn't get out very much, uh, then it, it, you could argue that it, it, it could sort of lose lose touch with reality. Um, a, a lot of what happens in storytelling is external. So I, I let's say I've got this idea about, I don't know, something about my family. And I've, I've just told this little story a few times to my friends. And I get feedback on that. And let's say they ignore it when I describe it. Or people say, no, nah, it doesn't sound right and so forth. Uh, I may change my story. I may decide that's not playing well. That doesn't seem to work. Uh, if I get affirmation for a certain kind of thing I say about myself, by contrast, I may repeat it again and again. Even if when I said it the first time, it was like not very close to reality. Uh, if I get a lot of affirmation on it, it may eventually become part of my narrative, uh, a part of it that is maybe more embellished than other parts. And so there's a lot of this social kind of uh, interaction that goes on that that shapes the kind of narrative identities we create. It reminds me, actually, did you happen to see a few days ago the article in the Wall Street Journal that uh, good storytellers are happier in life and love? I did not see that, but I should have seen that. I need to see that. <laughs> I'll send it to you. But <laughs> Thank you. The, ide the idea is, is that, especially in, in relationships with others, that when we start these relationships, we do exactly what you're saying, which is we begin to share the fictionalization of our past. We might say, here's what was important to me or what is important to me or how I grew up or 
a lot of these aspects of ourselves. But then what happens is that we move into routine and we're not telling each other these kinds of stories in the long run. So therefore, our happiness level gets affected. But those of us who continue to share the very narratives we're talking about and open these things up with each other and tell stories to each other, that the happiness index is much higher for those folks. Well, that, I like that. I, I like that kind of research. I mean, what we've tended to focus on here is more on the kinds of stories that are linked up with happiness and life satisfaction. And, uh, you know, so you, you find, for example, uh, there's some research that suggests that people who tell very coherent stories about their lives, stories that are easy to follow for the listener and that kind of have a point, uh, that actually turns out to be related to psychological well-being and growth. I mean, even though it's it sounds kind of academic, it's like, well, well, those are well-formed stories. They have a nice beginning, middle, and an end. There's something satisfying about telling a story about your life that way, and it seems to be linked up then with uh, positive uh, kinds of uh, feelings. Uh, a big one in American culture is telling redemptive stories, stories in which you went through pain and suffering and setback and misery and so forth and came out of it better than you were before. And this, I've, I've written a book on this called The Redemptive Self, Stories Americans Live By. I mean, this is like the go-to narrative for yeah. any well-adjusted midlife American adults uh, pretty much across the board, men and women, black and white, Hispanic, Asian. I mean, this is a very common narrative that people love where they can talk about. They almost revel in the setbacks they've had uh, to show kind of how things have come out of that in a positive way. And I think well, it's a very American story. It's a very too, right? American idea. I mean, there, there's, this, uh, you know, you see it in stories of uh, you know, religious stories of atonement or upward mobility, the American dream, rags to riches, uh, the Oprah narrative about overcoming abuse and and bad things early on and, and getting in touch with your true feelings. That's a redemptive story. There are so many models for this in our culture. Are there unhealthy narratives that actually not only cause you mental pain, but could actually cause health problems? That's a good question on the health problems. Certainly the mental pain. Uh, that that uh, has been studied. And so, uh, and there's probably no big surprise here, but uh, uh, a particular narrative form that seems to be linked up with unhappiness and depression and so forth is what we call contamination stories or contamination sequences. And, uh, you know, we all have some examples of these in our lives, but uh, uh, if you have a lot of them, it's kind of problematic. So in a contamination sequence, you know, usually the story starts off really, really great. I mean, some kind of Garden of Eden experience or a really positive moment in one's life. Everything looks beautiful and perfect. And then uh, fairly suddenly there's a fall. There's a, there's a turn uh, to the worst. Um, you know, she was beautiful. We were destined to be together. And then I woke up Monday morning and she was gone and she never came back. So those kinds of stories in which a really, really wonderful experience is sullied or contaminated, goes south really fast and can't be undone. Uh, you, you can sort of see how that kind of narrative, if you had a lot of those little scenes in your life, or if indeed you saw your whole life that way, that would, uh, that would be linked up with uh, negative uh, kinds of psychological consequences. When it comes to physical health, there is interest uh, today uh, in trying to document linkages between the ways in which people create stories for their lives on the one hand and actual physical health, symptoms, disease, and illness on the other. It's a new area of research. We don't know much yet there, but there's a lot of interest. Are there 
situations where you have maybe a communication disorder like autism where it would also impact your personality just by definition? Yeah, autism is a great one there. I mean, and Asperger's. I mean, so it's a communication slash social disorder and communication is social indeed. Uh, autism is one of the most interesting uh, phenomena, tragically so, uh, from the standpoint of life narrative. Uh, one, one take on it is, and at least for some young people uh, with autism, is they really never get into the uh, ontological position of being an author of their life. They, they, they don't feel that they can uh, create a story for their lives. And that's partly because they don't quite get the idea that they have their own sort of agency, that I've got my own mind that has my own goals and my own beliefs and my own values, and I act upon those and move forward in my life. And that's what other people do too. Uh, this phenomenon is sometimes called theory of mind. The idea that we ha that we all have, by the most of us have, by the time we're five or six, that that people have minds, and in their minds they have beliefs and desires, and they act upon them, and that's why people do what they do. Well, autistic, uh, some autistic children don't quite get that, okay? They don't quite understand this notion of theory of mind uh, and this idea that people are kind of walking around with these minds that have desires and goals in them, and then they act upon them. And given that that kind of understanding is compromised for some autistic children, they, they have a very difficult time creating stories for their lives because stories are mainly about characters who have minds, who act upon their desires desires and beliefs and goals over time. And so uh, autism is a real um, a debilitating kind of a condition socially in part because it compromises uh, your storytelling and, and it, for yourself and others. Now, that's not the only reason. I mean, it, it has a lot of other things that go with it. Uh, but the, the issue of identity and autism often kind of revolves around this deficit in narrative. I want to talk for a minute about culture because back to what you're saying before around the almost redemptive mythology of the American story, it seems that when you're born into a culture, you're automatically deposited inside of these narratives that pre-existed you. So they're telling stories that you, it's like almost like a master narrative that a lot of people, and frankly, a lot of people follow, right? Where it's like, hey, I go to school, I get a job, I have some kids and everything's going to be okay or something like that. Is that fairly universal that there is a master narrative in different cultures that people are born into? There's a lot of interest in that idea. I was a professor at UC Santa Cruz who you might want to uh, interview. In fact, you know, your voice is very much like his. This guy's name is <laughs> Phil Hammack, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of channeling Phil here. I actually feel like I'm talking to him, uh, but you're not Phil Hammack. Uh, Phil Hammack uh, is a brilliant uh, cultural psychologist at UC Santa Cruz, and he writes a lot about exactly what you're describing, master narratives. And his argument is that every culture has its own set of master narratives, and they vary quite a bit from one culture to the next. But as you suggest, we're sort of born into these things. It's like we, we sort of enter the world uh, amidst this swirl of plots and themes and potential characters, and we take it in. Now, we don't take it in passively necessarily because there's lots of competing forces and no culture is so simple as to suggest just one 
big, fat master narrative that everybody follows. Uh, so there is choice and so forth, but the choice is constrained by the cultural categories. And so I think in American society, uh, at least as it's traditionally been conceived, redemptive stories comprise a kind of master narrative. And we often find it we often think that there's something wrong with people almost. And we go, we'll go that far to suggest that, that there's something wrong with them if they can't find some kind of enhancement following suffering. And so you'll say, well, okay, that bad thing happened. That was terrible, terrible. But, you know, something good came out of that, right? And then somebody <laughs> wants the same response. Well, actually, no, nothing good came out of that. Uh, that's a really troubling thing. Uh, to hear in American society. And I don't think it's as troubling in certain other kind of cultures that maybe have a more kind of, uh, I, I would say, a more subtle understanding of the, of the possibilities of tragedy in life and so forth. And so I think, yeah, th these cultural expectations have a, a big effect on how we create stories for our lives. But again, having said that, people push back against them sometimes. And you can create a story that's anti-culture. You can say, I know the master narratives of my culture, and I'm going to create a counter-narrative that goes against it. That's who I am. That's what my identity is about. And that indeed uh, happens. It's also interesting to me when I think about what time period we're living inside of right now with these narratives, because clearly, as you suggested earlier, Homo sapiens have really been a predominant force on the planet for a couple hundred thousand years here. And the way we've told stories has clearly changed quite significantly, especially over the last few hundred years as media as a lot of other codification of big systems that tell stories. Religion's been around obviously longer than that, but governments and all these things have come together. It's almost like they're feeding a story to you in some ways, an idyllic story to you that must have some effect on the personalities of Homo sapiens walking around today versus the Homo sapiens that really just used a verbal system to communicate and gossip and talk to each other and didn't have these big systemic control systems in place that force-fed you these stories? Well, yeah, you can see them as big systemic control systems. That's one way to see it. You can also just uh, see them in terms of a proliferation of cultural memes about what it, what it means to live a meaningful life. And uh, uh, as you suggest, these change and sometimes change fairly dramatically over short periods of time. And so we can contrast this change to uh, the opposite end of it, uh, the view that uh, some people hold, thinking Joseph Campbell here, for example, and others who see these kind of fundamental narratives that go back to the beginning of human history, the story of the warrior, the story of the hero. So there may be certain kind of basic forms about, you know, young men and women who go out into the world and find adventure and mate and have children. I mean, these are kind of, these are pretty universal. So there's probably something to that. Uh, but layered over that are, are just all kinds of cultural variations on, on what it means to live a good life. And uh, in some cases, I think these variations are pushed really hard by uh, hegemonic forces, almost to the point of of it being sort of um, oppressive. Uh, and so it's like I, I, I'm suffocating almost, you know, with this, this certain kind of narrative that's coming down on me from my particular society, and I'm trying to push against it, you could argue. So there is, in some cases, it's like that. Uh, and, and in terms of change, too, I mean, it, I, I think you can tell just generally, generationally, uh, you know, you talk to people, there aren't many of them left now, but I mean, people in my father's generation and my mother's generation 
and the people who went through uh, World War II and so forth. And the way they tell stories about their lives, I mean, you know, there's a lot of similarity to how baby boomers tell stories, but a lot of differences too. And then take the millennial generation. So you've got three generations here. They obviously have a lot of common sort of experiences, but there's variation too in the kinds of things that people find interesting and exciting in terms of narrative, just in terms of those three generations. And that's cultural, that's changing all the time, and uh, it's an interesting thing to study. It would seem to me, back to the prehistory thing, that leadership from a personality trait perspective would be the almost Darwinian favored trait because those folks, when we were maybe lower on the food chain that could figure out how to navigate and quickly react and what we should do in different situations would keep the band alive. So I wonder to what extent leadership has changed as a personality trait underneath some of the blankets of what you're talking about, or maybe whether it's harder to even put a finger on underneath those systems. It's an interesting uh, idea, especially when we think about the, the evolution of, of human beings. And uh, I, I think there is something to the, to, the, to the notion that leadership is always going to be valued. Uh, we are social animals. We live in groups. Groups tend to have some hierarchy to them. Somebody's got to lead it in, in one way or another. There are no purely egalitarian groups, or at least we don't believe there have been many of them throughout human history. So leadership would be prized. At the same time, you can't have a group where everybody's a leader. Uh, 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 evolutionary biologists talk about this in terms of frequency-dependent uh, selection. So uh, you got to have leaders, but you also have to have followers. And leaders won't survive and reproduce if there aren't followers, and followers won't survive and reproduce if there aren't leaders. And so there, there's a lot of room in the evolution of human personality for various kinds of um, uh, positions. Uh, in, in the social group uh, and for variation. There's a sense in which perhaps variation has been selected out because social groups do best when there's, when there's you have a, a diversity of roles. And although it's not the group that passes its genes down to the next generation, it's the individual who does. Nonetheless, good groups survive and, and, and do well, and individuals within those groups then pass their genes down. So, so it, it, it's interesting to think about leadership in that regard. With respect to basic personality traits, by the way, uh, it's probably extroversion, social dominance that is the prime uh, predictor of who will uh, strive to be a leader in a group. But interestingly, highly extroverted, socially dominant people, although they strive to be leaders and are often seen as leaders, aren't necessarily good leaders. The traits that tend to be associated with good leadership are things like agreeableness and conscientiousness, uh, which are traits that, are, that suggest a more regulated kind of approach. This gets us a little bit off narratives and into personality traits, but that's obviously a foundational kind of issue. Uh, and and um, so I, uh, yeah, that's where I was going with that. So the context, though, it may be not be what a good leader is and a bad leader has got to be related to, though, the time period we're living in, right? Like a long time ago, socially dominant, extroverted leaders, the person that got you away from potentially other kinds of species of humans that were trying to, you know, war with you or something like that. Whereas the socially conscious thing is a little bit more of a modern value. 
There's something to that, although you could argue that Donald Trump, in that case, is sort of the primal leader here. Uh, imagine him as, uh, you know, when a group is under threat in a kind of fundamental way, you've got a socially dominant, usually a man who rises to the fore, and he's sort of got that kind of primal charisma in many people's eyes. Uh, but I think at the same time, you know, when we think of modern leaders in contemporary, you know, 21st society democracies and so forth, uh, we're usually looking for something different. We're looking for something with more conscientiousness and agreeableness and so on. Uh, still, you know, it kind of depends on the context. Different kinds of leaders with different kinds of styles sort of rise up uh, at, at different kinds. There's a lot of room in leadership for a, a range of personalities, I think. I mean, you've got to have some extroversion. You can't be a completely socially withdrawn person. I think that's kind of a prereq for leadership. And then I, I think you've got to have a fair amount of conscientiousness and agreeableness. That is to say, you know, uh, a, a rule-bound, hardworking approach to life that, that also goes with empathy and care. I mean, we value those traits so much as human beings uh, that we, we typically want them in our leaders and value them in our leaders. And, and most of the time we get some, we get a fair amount of that in our leaders. You recently, speaking of the Trumpocalypse, wrote an article about what makes Donald Trump tick. Was it for The Atlantic? Was that what it was for? Yes, it was the June cover issue, uh, cover article, The Mind of Donald Trump. First of all, I'd love to hear you talk about that, but it's also interesting about how you might be able to tell how someone ticks by watching their personality like that. Yeah. Well, in Mr. Trump's case, we did ask him for an interview, but we got turned down on that. Uh, the Atlantic came to me back in February and asked me to do do this piece. I had written a book a few years ago on the personality of George W. Bush, and they liked it because it was sort of fair-minded and evidence-based. And so they wanted me to do something like that for Donald Trump. And so what I had to rely on, uh, for the most part, is the biographical record. And, of course, there's plenty out there. And uh, watching his behavior, of course, uh, and that's easy to see. I mean, there's, there's so many examples. He's been in the public limelight now for almost 40 years, uh, uh, actually more than 40 years, uh, going back to the early 1980s, uh, late 70s. And so there's plenty of data on Mr. Trump. Uh, it, you have to cull through it, though, because a lot of it's just kind of crazy and off the wall. Uh, but it was an interesting adventure for me. I spent three months on it, and um, it was fun. I talked about him in terms of his basic traits, his uh, fundamental goals and values, and the story that he has created for his life. So you're basing all of his information on his press persona? Well, most presidential candidates, are good. there's going to be a lot of public data out there. These are people who live in the public eye. Uh, in Mr. Trump's case, there's maybe a little bit more because he's been around for so long and he's been so controversial. Uh, but yeah, so when I've done these kind of, I've only done a few of these in my career uh, where I've done these kind of d dug deep, these sort of psychological analyses of, a, of an individual, uh, you would typically pick somebody who's, you know, for whom there's a, a significant public record and there's got to be a lot of interest as, as there is, of course, right now uh, with Donald Trump. How might you think about Hillary Clinton? <clears throat> well, Hillary Clinton uh, has also been in the public eye for uh, for as long as Donald Trump has, so there's plenty of plenty of information there uh, uh, with respect to her. I haven't done the the deep analysis. I think you you know, so I, I can't really kind of. Uh, there's not a lot for me to say on that, but I mean, at the basic level of dispositional traits, uh, they, they really are a stark contrast. I mean, I, I spoke at the beginning of this interview about five basic traits of psychological of, of psychological individuality or personality at the, at the basic level. And for Mr. Trump, there's two that just stand out. I mean, over the top, it's extroversion, social dominance on the one hand. I mean, he's just off the map on that. And then agreeableness on the low end, that is. 
rock bottom, really, really low agreeableness. You're not going to find many public figures that are that low on a trait that gets at things like humility, care, altruism, empathy, and sensitivity. Okay, so I mean, he's like way down on that one. So you put those two together, high extroversion and low agreeableness. That's a pretty combustible combination. A socially dominant character who uh, is not too concerned about the collateral damage that might uh, ensue uh, should he make big uh, risky decisions, which highly extroverted people often do. In the case of Hillary Clinton, I mean, you know, she's it's those traits really aren't all that interesting. I mean, you know, what, what stands out in her case is this trait called conscientiousness for better and for worse it's not all good but it's uh, but when we think of conscientiousness we think of somebody who's very very like focused and disciplined and hardworking and, and the kind of person who is uh, kind of always the adult in the room the do-gooder the socially responsible type I mean that's the one trait that kind of stands out and uh, in, in highlight the other four not so much for her so at that level it's pretty easy to see differences between them because traits are easy to to perceive they're in what actors do what we all do when we perform our roles in everyday life and Hillary and 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 Donald have been doing this for 40 years now on the public stage it's when you get past the traits though uh, that it gets harder when you get at their goals and values and their story and for Donald Trump I spent some time on that it would it would it would take a deep dig uh, to do the same for Hillary Clinton Dan where should people go to learn more about their own personality, the personality research that you've done? How would you direct people to start to dig into this a little bit more? Well, I'm kind of traditional on this. I mean, uh, the the article on Donald Trump, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, be too uh, self-promoting here, but one of my big goals in The Atlantic, the piece for The Atlantic, and it's, it's, a, it's a lengthy piece, uh, it's in-depth, is uh, not just to, you know, understand Mr. Trump, but also to kind of introduce to the public uh, these basic ideas in personality psychology. So we talk about the big five basic traits. We talk about goals and values. We talk about people's life stories, how they create stories. Uh, that article is a pretty good introduction there. Uh, I have a website uh, here at Northwestern that kind of talks about some of the research we do on personality. There's lots of resources there. Um, so there's those kinds of sources. Uh, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, there, there, I, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, Different personality psychologists uh, have uh, research programs that are often featured in their websites and so forth. Some of those are good. Well, Dan, thanks so much for being on Grow Big Always. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for your questions. Thanks to Dan McAnam and thanks to you guys. If you want to know who's coming up next on the show, you won't find it on growbigalways.com. You'll only find it in our newsletter, which goes out every Monday with each episode and also gives you a list of the folks that are coming up on the show and gives you the opportunity to actually ask them some questions in advance, which I can either ask them or you can record yourself asking them and I'll put you on the show. So as always, thank you so much for sharing the show and for listening.